Well, good morning. So you get me this week, and then you get nobody next week. Which is better? That's the question. Thanks a lot. <laughs> we might as well close in prayer, I guess, is what's all we need to do. Well, we're going to be in 1 Peter 5 this week. We'll take a week off. We'll finish 1 Peter 5 in two weeks. After that, I don't know where Doug is going. We'll have to wait and see. But we are in 1 Peter chapter 5, as we're going to pick up five verses here to see what Peter has to say after he's talked about the suffering that the churches in Asia Minor have been going through, and he explains the reason, in a sense, why they have. It's not a surprise. It's to be expected. He's helped them to think through how they go through that suffering, how they keep living the life that God has called them to lead in Christ. And now he's going to turn to a little bit of a different subject, which is a little more specific. He's going to address a particular group within the church that has a particular responsibility. So let's see what he says. He says this, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So one of the questions that comes up when you think about the early church and you wonder how it all started out is, how did they lead in the early church? Who was in charge? Who was the one that, ones in the individual, what we would call congregations, individual churches, who sort of kept things going, who kept watch over people, who made sure that the demands of the gospel were being played out in life? Because remember, they didn't yet have what we have. They didn't have... Bibles to carry around. They didn't have a New Testament yet. They had oral tradition. They had teachings that were passed on verbally, and they remembered these things. But, but who did things? So church historians love to think about those kinds of things and look back in history and see the development of, of church government, because we've come a long way from having some apostles in Jerusalem and the early church to what we have now. And depending on your particular denominational or sectarian background, you may have had authority of elders over you in churches. You may have had deacons who assumed that authority. You surely had pastors who thought they were the ones who were in authority. But you may have also known of bishops. <clears throat> you may have been in a district or a presbytery or assembly. Or some of us have been in positions or churches where there's really nobody designated to be in charge. It's a plurality of people. So there are different ways that we do church today, but that's not how it all started. So Peter is addressing this question of who's going to make sure that the gospel is lived out the way he's been saying it needs to be lived out. That's what he's addressing in this part of chapter 5. Now, we know that early on when the church was just starting in Jerusalem, everybody was Jewish. 
So all the Christians were Jewish Christians. They all came out of a Jewish experience. And in the synagogues, that were as the gospel spread, it went often through synagogues outside of Jerusalem. And then even into Gentile territory, Paul and others would go to synagogues first to preach the gospel. So there was a Jewish flavor. And the Jewish flavor of leadership was, was not unlike what Peter addresses here. But the question would become, as the church continued to grow, particularly among Gentiles, who's in charge? Who does the leading? What does the leading look like? How's it playing out? Early on, we know that some positions or offices or designated tasks were given. Acts chapter 6, the church in Jerusalem, conflict arises. Who's going to take care of the widows? How are we doing it? We're not doing it well. Some of the widows are upset because they're not getting an equal distribution of the food. The church sets aside seven men. They are ordained by the apostles with a specific responsibility to take care of people. And this is, these seven are the, what we think of as the forerunners of deacons. They're not listed as deacons or called that in Acts 7, but we think of that. But the first real office in the church to come about was probably this position that Peter speaks of, this position called elder. In Judaism, elders were prominent in leadership way back in Old Testament times. If you wanted to find a decision or have a decision made about life, you could go to the, the city gate and meet with elders who were there. We're not exactly sure who all these elders were. They weren't necessarily designated like an office. They may have just have been a bunch of old guys who had some wisdom, who had walked with the Lord, who knew some scripture, knew God. So the elders were prominent in giving leadership to people in the Old Testament days. And then in the New Testament, the same thing begins to happen. In Acts chapter 11, we, we find the first mention of this idea that there were elders kind of in charge of church things. It's when Paul and Barnabas, traveling among the churches they're planting, begin to collect an offering for the poor back in Jerusalem, and they send that offering back to the elders in Jerusalem. Well, those elders could have been thought of as apostles. The apostles, some were still there, but it would be more than apostles. These elders seem to be in charge of something. They are the ones to whom this money is being sent. A couple chapters later, Acts 14, we see the same two guys, Paul and Barnabas, as they're finishing up their first missionary journey it says that they are appointing elders in each of the churches that are planted. So this position, elder, is now a prominent position. The churches that are planted throughout Asia Minor, throughout Greece, through the places where Peter, Barnabas, others are going, they appoint these men called elders. And, and Paul, in 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, he gives some pretty clear qualifications of the kind of man you have to be in order to be an elder in the church. He's looking for particular kinds of people. People, for instance, who are married to one wife. People who are able to control their household. People not addicted to much wine. There, there's a list of what we could call qualifications. So churches would know if they needed to, to replace an elder. Maybe Paul has appointed one in a church. Maybe that elder passes away. They need another elder. They know what kind of person to look for. Paul gave them those kind of specific instructions. Peter in chapter 5 here doesn't give us those kind of qualifications for what an elder needs to be like in terms of his personal characteristic. Instead, he gives them a charge, what they have to do. 
So notice that there's a specific thing they have to do, but he starts out like this. He exhorts the elders, the elders among you, probably then using that term, not just saying, I'm talking to you old guys and gals. No, I'm talking to elders in the church because he says, as a fellow elder, Peter is an apostle. He sees himself, though, in that role of being an elder. He also describes himself this way, and this is very clear description, self-description of who Peter saw himself to be. Notice he says in verse 1, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, Peter saw what Christ went through. Part of what makes him an apostle is that he had that in, on his resume. He was with Jesus. He witnessed Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. But not only that, he also says this, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So Peter's already saying, I am an elder like you, but I also witness Christ's sufferings. I also am a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Well, when did Peter partake in glory that's going to be revealed? It's going to be revealed later. There's going to be more of it, but I've already partaken in it. And it makes you think of when he was with Jesus on that Mount of Transfiguration and saw Christ's effulgent glory shining brightly. And you might remember Peter's response was, kind of dumbfoundedness, and I got to do something. Should we build some tents for Elijah and Moses to live in? And Jesus just calms him down. No, we don't need to do that, thanks. But Peter's partake, partook of that, so he sees himself in this role as apostle, and then he turns right around to these fellow elders that he's writing to. Remember, these are churches throughout Asia Minor, and he says these words, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So he uses a particular image of how these elders are to lead. And he uses this word shepherd. It's a verb here, shepherd, to do something. And he has something in mind. And he's writing to people who see shepherds. Shepherds are around them. Maybe some of them have been shepherds, not likely, because shepherds were not usually thought of as being very involved in community life. They lived a life outside the city. They may, there may surely have been some shepherds in the churches in Asia Minor, but may not have been. But everybody knew shepherds. But the way he uses this word in the Greek is, is interesting because he uses it in an imperative mood. It's very strong. He's saying, guys, this is job one. Elders, this is what you have to do. You have to shepherd the flock. You have to exercise oversight. It's incredibly important that you do that. So doing, saying that, we have to think, well, why did he come up with that? I mean, why didn't he say, I write to the fellow, maybe there were bishops by then. Well, there weren't any bishops yet. Why didn't he write to the deacons? Well, there may not have even been deacons yet. May, must have only been elders, and these elders may have been appointed by Paul or Barnabas or whoever planted the church in their area. Peter knows about them. He's writing to them. And so he says, this is your job, guys. You've got a shepherd the people. You've got to take care of the people. Where do you get the idea? Think back to John 21. Chapter 21 of John is where Jesus encounters Peter, or Peter encounters Jesus on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. After Peter had denied Jesus three times, Jesus has died, has risen, and now he's appearing on this shore. He's making a, a meal, some fish baking over coals, and Peter and his buddies are out on the boat. Remember, Peter sees 
There's someone on the shore cooking fish, and then he realizes it's Jesus, and he jumps off and goes toward him. And when he encounters him, remember, Jesus wants to reinstate Peter into a right standing. And so he asks him three times, just like the the threefold denial that Jesus had made of Jesus, he asked him three times, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you. You know I love you. Yes, I love you. And then three times Jesus gives him the same kind of command. He says twice, feed my sheep. But one time he doesn't say feed my sheep. He says, tend my sheep. But the word is actually shepherd. Shepherd my sheep. So Peter has this idea straight from Jesus that his task, the task of church leaders, is to shepherd the sheep, to feed the sheep. So he's simply passing on what he had directly from Christ's lips himself. Guys, elders in the churches in Asia Minor, this is what you have to do. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, that is under your care. This is what has to be done. So fast forward a couple thousand years. We have churches today. Some of them have elders. That's a part of their government. Not all churches have elders. It's a biblical office, but some don't use it. Um, The first time when I became a Christian in high school, it was through the ministry of a Baptist church, and they didn't have elders, they had deacons. Uh, I remember the first business meeting I went to, I can still remember that, back when I was 16, a church business meeting, a Sunday night. I thought I should go. I had just joined because, you know, in a Baptist church, you become a believer, you join pretty fast. So I was a member. I remember sitting in a pew, and there was a discussion about, I don't remember what, I just remember the two deacons that were behind me started having a discussion among themselves why the pastor was trying to lead the meeting, and they were getting louder than the pastor. Finally, the pastor had to stop speaking and ask them, did they have something to say? And it went something like this. Oh, I've got something to say, all right. Joe over here, he's dead wrong on this decision. I just think he's, I'm not even sure why he's a deacon. Joe responded, well, thanks a lot, Bob. Um, We've been serving together for years, but I think you're the one who's wrong. I know what's right here. And that went on until finally the last word was, I think maybe we need to finish this outside. I'm thinking, wow. Church is much more interesting than I thought it would be. Well, it kind of got tamer after that. (laughs) And I went to college went to a Baptist church in Richmond where I was going to school first two years, then met this woman who would become my wife and had a crisis of faith because she was a Presbyterian. I didn't know much about Presbyterians, but I did know they had elders, and they had Presbyteries, and they had synods, and they had all kinds of stuff that I'd never been a part of. Well, you know what happens sometimes when you, you find the one you love, and they're not exactly thinking the way you are. You find that you have to think the way they are. Or is, um, I, I like the way that the late R.C. Sproul talked about his wife, Vesta. He would call her by her name, Vesta, but oftentimes he would call her, with this terminology, the one who must be obeyed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying Lee, my wife, is the one who must be obeyed, but if I'm smart, I will. <laughs> so anyway, that's the, the short of it all is I became a Presbyterian. So I learned about elders, and I saw how they began to operate. And was there a difference? Well, yeah, because churches like Presbyterian churches, they often had both elders and they had deacons, and they had different roles. So focusing on elders, elders seem to be one of two camps in our day. 
and I've been in both churches that have both sides or both types of elders. You have elders who are involved in the life of the body, who are involved in people's lives, who are doing what Peter says to, to shepherd the flock of God. But you can also have elders who consider themselves to be a part of what we call the board of elders. They are the board of directors. They meet regularly. They make decisions. They gather together. They still have authority, but they don't necessarily enter into the life of people. They work through issues using parliamentary procedure. They do it decently and in order because they're Presbyterians or others. But they don't necessarily shepherd anyone. And so I've been in churches that had that kind of elder. And they left the responsibility for what we might think of as personal ministry up to staff. As I remember one elder in the church I was serving on the staff of saying, well, that's why we hire you guys. We make the decisions, you put it into practice. Well, that's kind of like working under a board of directors. I've done that too as a school administrator. I report to a board of directors. They tell me what to do. Or in good management, a board like that simply tells the administrator what they can't do. And then they're free to do everything else. Is that what Peter had in mind? That elders should become this board that sits around a big table and meets monthly and goes through an agenda to make decisions? Well, that has to happen, particularly as life of, in church life gets more complicated. And elders evolved, in a sense, over time. And church leadership responded to the, the needs of the organization, the administrative functions that develop as churches got more complicated and bigger and larger. Back in the days of early church life, when the elders were appointed, there were no buildings to care for. You didn't have to worry about that. You met in people's homes. Maybe you met in the synagogue if you were allowed. Your role really was to be with people and care for them, feed them and shepherd them. Nowadays, you've got multi-million dollar facilities to take care of. No wonder there are arguments about the color of carpet and everything else that can so easily take up our time as elders. So what's the point here? What is Peter really trying to say when he says shepherd the flock? What is it that needs to be done? Well, to figure that out, I think, it'd be wise for us first to see how it's not done. And that's what Peter says, because as he describes this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Notice he goes into three ways not to do it. He didn't tell them how to do it. He says, don't do it this way. And then he tells them how to do it. So first of all, he says uh, very clearly, when you're going to be an elder, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not because you have to, <laughs> not because the pastor's forcing you. But do it willingly. Do it with, because you have a heart to do it. You have a heart for people. Then he says, secondly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Well, I'm not sure that elders were ever a paid position, except for the elders who are pastors. And scripture is clear that that's not a bad thing to do, to pay pastors. I'm all for paying pastors. <laughs> pay them early and often. <laughs> but... Don't do it with that in mind. Now, there are other ways to, I think, try to have well, shameful gain besides just being paid. I remember an elder in a church I was in in Maryland. I was on the staff there. The elder was new to the elder board, and he was handpicked by the, the pastor. And this gentleman seemed to come alongside the pastor, would sit next to him at elder meetings. So I was allowed to be in the room for the elder meetings. I wasn't an elder, but would usually have to report. 
And he became the kind of the confidant of the pastor. They would sit together. The pastor would hand off specific responsibilities. But I never saw this guy in church. Never saw him anywhere but in an elder meeting. I thought, hmm, I wonder if he even goes here. <laughs> but he was on the rolls. And, and I just noticed at the end of the elder meetings, he and the pastor would go out together. So one day I asked the pastor, so, you know, you're really close to this guy. And I didn't know where he came from. Is he new to the church? He said, oh, I've known him for a while. I said, well, where do you guys go after the elder meetings? Oh, we, we go down to the bar and have a few. And oh. <laughs> well, then I sort of wanted to get to know this guy. Like, why is he an elder? He, I don't even know that he knows much about church. I'm not even sure he's a Christian. So I talked to him one day after an elder meeting. Again, never saw him on Sundays. And, and he admitted that he just liked being close to positions of power. That, for him, was kind of what shameful gain can be. And then he said, frankly, I don't really like the pastor that much. But I kind of like being in a position. That can happen. Not only in our day, apparently it can happen in Peter's day. So Peter says, don't do this for shameful gain, but do it, do it eagerly. Want to do it. Want to do it because God has called you to it. And then lastly, don't do it in a way that's domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Well, it's easy to be domineering. And if you think of pastors as elders, and they are, and Paul would speak of that in Ephesians 4, where he says pastor-teacher uses that role. It's the same idea of an elder. It's pretty easy to be in a position of domineering. If you have authority and you have power, you can become domineering. In fact, um, one person said it this way, pride ever lurks at the heels of power. Even a little authority is prone to turn the seemly walk into a most offensive strut. (laughs) And that can be true. It can surely be true among pastors. Many of you have seen that. The first pastor that we know of that sort of was like this, domineering, doing it for the wrong reasons, was a guy who's listed in 3 John, well, 3 John doesn't have chapters, verses 9 and 10. Diotrephes is his name, and this is what John said about him. He likes to put himself first. He does not acknowledge our authority. He refuses to welcome the brothers. And he also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So apparently, domineering pastors slash elders have been around for a good long time. It was early church that first experienced it. So how are we to act then if we are elders? If those who are elders are supposed to shepherd the church, how do they do it? Well, there's one way to do it, Peter says. He says it in verse 5. He says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So the the well-dressed elder will be clothed in humility. That's the way you do it. Not only that, notice, you can't help but notice that there's a reward for those elders who serve well, who do this the way that Peter says. He says in in verse 4, And when the good sheep, the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Well, crown there is probably a metaphor. It's not that elders are going to actually have a crown. They might. But the crown of glory is a metaphor. The point here, the the reality here is that there is glory. That there will be some sense in which Jesus will recognize elders who have served well. And and share with them glory. Remember Peter says back in the first part of this that he, he experienced the glory that was to come. Well, elders will experience that glory in some special way and it seems to be that they might even be recognized in some way in the in the new heavens and the new earth.
So that's what Peter says about elders. But what does it say about the rest of us who aren't elders? Well, it tells us that we're not elders, maybe, but we are sheep. Sheep has been a, as a, as a word or an idea, a metaphor used to describe God's people all throughout Scripture. Psalm 23, for instance. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If the Lord is my shepherd, I must be a sheep. And all of Scripture, many times, we're, we're thought of as sheep. That's what the Lord sees us as, his flock. Peter calls elders to, to shepherd these sheep, these people like us. Now, you know, sheep, they can be pretty adorable. Let me check this guy out, if we can go to that slide. This is a guy I met in CW walking back in the winter. He was just hanging out by a fence, and I, he let me take his picture. He has that wise look about him, maybe some age, got a little gray going on around his, you know, his mouth there. And he was just checking me out. He wouldn't do anything. Sheep don't really do anything. Did you notice that? But he looks pretty good, doesn't he? Most sheep don't look like that. Sheep, for the most part, are what we call them, dumb. <laughs> In fact, you know, they're pretty nasty. They're pretty filthy most of the time. Sheep don't really clean themselves. They're not like cats. They roll in stuff. They get mud all over themselves. They get their own waste all over themselves because they have all this fur, this wool, and it just gathers everything. They walk through a bramble, and they gather all kinds of stuff. They get thorns, and they get bugs, and they're just nasty. They're not easy to have around. That's what sheep are like, unfortunately. There's some good qualities. They're very independent. They're very loyal. Apparently, sheep are good at voice recognition, so they can begin to learn a voice and follow that voice, the voice of the shepherd. They are loyal to one another, but they also get jealous of one another. When one sheep dies, the sheep, other sheep around that sheep will mourn. They actually grieve the loss of the ones that they like. Uh, but sheep, for the most part, are the kinds of animals that put themselves in peril. They're the only animal that can't find its way home even if they're just a mile away. You know, most other animals will find a way home. You, you've read the stories about dogs who were left in one state, and they travel across states to find their owners. People try to get rid of cats. The cats keep showing back up. I mean, even squirrels. I, I knew a guy in Newport News who had squirrel problem in his yard, so he captured them with those have-a-heart-safe traps and put a little paint, spray paint on their tails and took them to Newport News Park and let them go. Not sure you're supposed to do that. He lived about three miles from the park. He said within a week, they all came back. They're back in his yard. Here's all these squirrels with their tails painted in my yard again. <laughs> he kept doing it and finally gave up. He said, the stupid things keep coming back home. I can't get rid of them. Even squirrels find their way home. Sheep can't find their way home. They are without any sense of direction. And they won't stop and ask for directions. And they won't look at the map. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> They put themselves in peril all the time. There's a shepherd in Texas. His name is Ed Winton. This is what he said. Sheep are just born looking for a way to die. Because <laughs> that's what they do. They have almost no depth perception. They can walk along a fence. The gate can be there wide open, and they can't see it. They just can't see that it's there. They have to have a shepherd to lead them through the gate. You can see some reasons why... <laughs> Jesus and the apostles use, and God himself uses sheep to describe us, can't you? Um, they'll follow each other to their own demise. There are stories of sheep. One sheep goes over the cliff, and they all just keep going. One by one, they'll jump off. Because, hey, well, he did it. <laughs> I must have to do it, too. 
That's what sheep are like. Without a shepherd, they're, they're just waiting to die and looking for a new way to do it. They'll do stupid things. And most of the time, shepherds would say, sheep get into trouble and all they would have to do to get out of trouble is one simple thing. And that is turn around and go the opposite way. Hmm. What's repentance mean? <laughs> That's all they'd have to do is turn around and go the opposite way. But sheep won't do that. When they are threatened, when a flock is threatened by a predator, sheep will, will not just turn and run in an opposite direction. Being sheep, they circle up and just run in circles, a big circle, until they get so tired they literally fall over. And the, the predator then comes up and says, thank you, because <laughs> that's all it takes. Sheep are like that. They're defenseless. They don't fight well. I mean, you think a ram's fighting because they have those big horns, but your basic sheep, they have nothing to fight with. They don't really bite much. They don't fight each other. They don't know how to do it. They're, they don't have that kind of built-in sense of protection. It's an animal that has to be cared for. It has to be taken care of. So, with that in mind, if there are, is a need for elders, it's because there's a need for shepherds. It's because we're sheep. Robert Robinson wrote a hymn back in the 18th century. He was a British pastor who went through some denominational changes. He was a young man when he became a believer. He was in a Baptist church. He heard the preaching of George Whitfield and was so moved by it, he came under the auspices of the Methodist movement. After that, he changed after he became a pastor and became a Congregationalist. But when he was 22 years old, this is pretty young, he wrote a hymn that most of us would know. It's called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We've sung that. Most of us have sung it. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise, he wrote. Streams of mercy never ceasing, calls for songs of loudest praise. Great hymn. But notice his, some of the words he uses, some of the ideas in the stanza. Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God, using that sheep imagery, he, to save my soul from danger, interposed his precious blood. Then he says this, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. A fetter used for animals. But this is the stanza that I want us to focus on as we close. He wrote this, this is sheep language, this is our heart language, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, take my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. So Robinson wrote that at the age of 22. He spent his life pastoring, shepherding people. Near the end of his life, he made a strange change in his denominational affiliation. Now, he had been a Baptist and a Methodist and a Congregationalist. He became a Unitarian. And those who knew him thought, he's given up the faith. Unitarians don't really believe in the deity of Christ. They believe that Jesus existed, but not that he is God. And so they wondered, how could this man do this? This man who wrote a hymn like this, he had written numerous books about the faith, numerous hymns. But before he died, he didn't make clear that he was going to be back to a Congregationalist or a Baptist or a Methodist, but he did make it clear that no, he was not himself denying Jesus. 
He said, in fact, important words about who Jesus is. He said, Christ is himself a person infinitely lovely as both God and man. So it reminds us that shepherds follow the one who is both God and man, who is the chief shepherd, in the words of Peter. Elders follow them, but so do the sheep. He is the one we follow. He is our big, big elder. So in in verse 5, Peter closes this section with these words. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So younger men who think they probably know better than the older men, and they may well, (laughs) still follow these elders, these God-appointed leaders, and clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So guys, let's not be like this guy. If we can have this guy. Don't be like him. (laughs) Or at least wait till the elders turn their back when you do this. (laughs) But instead, let's hold on to the chief elder, the chief shepherd, the one who loves us. Have a great day.